0: Yeah, I'm pretty good. I think I know a lot. Things are going pretty well for me. And my faith? Yeah, it's pretty sweet. I've got it all figured out. But what if I don't? I'm Daniel Kuberek, filling in for Kent Kingston. And today's guest will tell us why, in actual fact, I'm not the centre of the universe. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Well it's really great to have you with us here on Signs of the Times radio, Kent is away so I'm enjoying the power that comes with sitting in the host's chair and with us today we have a really exciting guest which is Nathan Brown. Nathan you're quite a regular writer for us at Signs of the Times and not only that you used to edit the magazine so I have much to learn from from your vast array of knowledge. (laughs) at least a little bit of history so that adds up to something that's right well i mean as a as a kid i i always saw your articles in in various publications and and on TV as well, so you're quite a, a well-known entity in Christian writing circles. Well,
1: you're, um, you're making me feel old now <laughs> when you're talking about, as a boy, I used to.
0: <laughs> I, used to I used to read your great works. Cool. But one of those great works actually came out more recently, and that was a book by the name Of Falafels and Following Jesus. Now, this book is of particular importance to our signed subscribers because if you subscribe to the magazine on the website and use the code falafel, you will receive a copy of this book for free. Now, this book is very interesting because, no, it's not a recipe book about how to make (laughs) falafels. It is actually a a book about your trip to the Bible, Lands. Can you tell us about how that came about, that trip that inspired this book? Yeah, well, firstly, some
1: of the feedback I've had from the book, and it's just been out for a few months, is that people have expressed their disappointment that there's not lot <laughs> more about food in there after the title. We we actually got some bookmarks printed up that we've been giving away with some of the books that have a falafel recipe on them. <laughs> so, yeah, you can get the taste for it as well. And I like the idea of having falafels as the code word. And I, I wonder what happens if you put in other food groups as the code word. <laughs> you know, if I put in lamingtons, what do I get as a special special offer?
0: Oh, oh. <laughs> wait till you find out. Are you, are you, I just as an aside, are you a big falafel fan yourself, Nathan?
1: I am, actually. They're good food. Really, it came about as far as the title was that it was just that thing when you're stopping by the side of the road on a trip and, you know, the roadside food is a falafel stand and they particularly pretty good in that part of the world, which is where they come from, of course. So good, simple, cheap, reasonably healthy food along the roadside while you're dashing from one place to the next.
0: So you visited the the Bible lands in in 2013 for the first time when you were invited to go down there with Andy Nash. Mm. What was your sort of first impressions of of being up there? <laughs> yeah, and I was
1: kind of even reluctant the first time I got the invitation to go. I was trying to work out why would you do this? What are you hoping to get from it? Can the stories that I've grown up with as someone who's grown up with the stories of the Bible, you know, can they hold up under you know, the modern you know, tourist trade, the things that surround it, the, you know. So I was really reluctant. And then when I got there, I was just trying to work out, now, what are the, what's the benefit that I'm trying to get from being here? How's it going to affect me? And uh, particularly in a faith context, what am I seeking to get from it that will make a difference in my faith and my life? And that was kind of this puzzle that I was seeking to solve. And, you know, I felt that I'd come up with a bit of an answer to that, and then I had the chance to go back again in 2015 and was actually helping lead the group. And it was during that trip that I said, hey, I think this is an experience that's worth sharing and how could we how could we share it in a way that would make sense for people who might never have the chance to go there or might even be hesitant like I was about, you know, what's the value in this? And, you know, a lot of the things we see on the news from that part of the world are not particularly positive and can even be downright scary, mm. you know, so there are people that are very reluctant to, to say, "Well, you know this is something I could actually do so when I kind of had to come up with this answer about you know what's the benefit from it, then I, how can we share that and that was the genesis for this book, and I specifically went on a two week tour with a group in October last year for the purposes of writing the story of going on a trip like that
0: mm. You've launched this book already a couple of months ago, apart from people being disappointed about the lack of falafel (laughs) recipes. What's been the general feedback to it so far that you've found?
1: Yeah, it's been um, quite positive and that's always a nice thing. You know, people say polite things, but also people saying enthusiastic things and about how it made them read the story a little bit differently. Um, My wife shared it with one of her work colleagues and she was actually planning, this friend was planning on going on a trip uh, later this year. And so they were really enthusiastic about jumping into the book. And they said, there was something on the first page that just changed how I thought about it. Mm. And ultimately, that is the was the answer to my original question. What are we seeking to do? This is we're seeking to engage with the stories in a new and a different kind of way and to be challenged by them again but also to learn some more about them and to go deeper into them in that way. So I think the book has achieved that. And from the feedback that I've got from quite a few readers, that excites me. I hope that it's kind of just an entertaining read. I kind of imagined it as a travel book, you know, a travel story. Mm. So you have the experience of getting on and off the bus and going to these different places and sort of the contradictions between the history and the story, Bible stories and some of that background compared to the contemporary experience of travel and you know, some of the tourist kind of trappings and paraphernalia and and then also the very strong religious presence in a lot of those places as well and what that means and how it all works together. Mm. Uh, there's lots to explore.
0: Now, the reason why we, we connect this book with with the article you've written on this month's Signs of the Times magazine is because you've been writing a series of, of articles about faith and, and faith applied practically in our everyday lives. Now, you've written a couple of those so far. This is going to be the fourth one in the series so yes. far. Mm-hmm. So you wrote about practicing faith, which went along the theme of the more we practice, the better we get. Yeah. You also wrote about trusting faith in that it is easy to study faith, but it's a different matter to sort of uh, trust it. Hmm. And then also consoling faith, which is faith is there in times of need as a, as a form of consolation now for this this month's article you've written about humble faith, what sort of made you feel that humility was an important theme to explore in this month's article?
1: Yeah, I think that one of the misperceptions of faith, and particularly from people of no faith but even from some people of who have i guess from some people who have rejected faith but also others who have accepted faith but still trying to work it out is that faith is something that makes us proud that makes us you know feel better about ourselves that actually you know when we see people supposedly people of faith who are stepping out into the world and saying this is how you should be and you're wrong and if you don't believe this you go to hell or whatever that might be and I believe that the call to genuine faith uh, across all faiths is actually to humility Mm. and that simply by the mechanism of faith, by wrestling with something other than ourselves. And, you know, in all faiths, we're looking at something bigger than ourselves. Mm-hmm. That should kind of put us in our, put life and ourselves in a better perspective so that the world doesn't revolve around me. There's actually other things out there, whether you call that God or whether you call it the universe or whether you refer to that as some kind of historic faith tradition. mm mm-hmm. You know, that we're not the inventors of this thing. We're not the ones that have made it up ourselves. It's something that we've received and often with so much history behind it and so many people who have wrestled with it in the past and it shaped their lives and it's had such an impact on history for good and for bad. And we arrive at this as kind of not the grand culmination of it all, but simply as another small piece of this ongoing story and that, when we put that in that proper perspective, we actually recognise that we are small players. We're still called to play our part and to be faithful, and to you know it makes a significant difference in our lives. But we get given this much bigger picture of history, of how the world works, of what it means to be faithful. And we're always called to be more than what we are, but at the same time we recognize that we're less than what we t- are tempted to think we are. Mm-hmm. And so faith by simply those mechanisms should make us recognize that we are small people in a big world, in a large, larger story, in a bigger history. And so that should be a position. Our starting point of faith should always be a position of humility.
0: You sort of start off this concept with with an analogy which actually comes from from one of your trips or actually rather two of your trips when you were working on expanding ideas for the book Falafels and Following Jesus. Yeah. Now you visited the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem. Can you tell us about, you were there twice, so mm-hmm. you were there in 2013 as well as last year. Can you tell us how that trip came about?
1: And that's a regular part of the tours around you know when you take a tour that takes you through Israel and the Palestinian territories of course this is the church of the nativity is believed to be built or is built on the traditional site of the of the birth of Jesus mm. so it's actually in the town of Bethlehem as the as the christmas stories go which today is in the west bank so when you travel there from Jerusalem as the crow flies it's a pretty short distance but you actually have to go Around the dividing wall and through a checkpoint and you've kind of crossed into a, another geographical territory. It's relatively easy to do if you're travelling with a um, an Australian passport. For others it's not such a simple process and those walls become very life defining and limiting mm-hmm. depending on which side of the wall you're on. So Bethlehem itself is a predominantly Palestinian small town. It's probably a, a you know, we would might call it a city, a small city these days, almost within sight of Jerusalem. But of course, it is one of those pilgrimage places because of this, this moment in history. The Church of Nativity is in the centre of Bethlehem. Just the manger square is kind of the central square of the city and then the church is to one side of that. And um, the church is the oldest continuously used church in the world, mm-hmm. so a significant um, Christian site, even just for that that history. Like a lot of the churches, it's divided up between different Christian groups that care for different parts of it. Underneath the main part of the church is this small grotto that you can go down into. There's a star on the floor, and that is the traditional place that Jesus was born. Mm-hmm. Now we really don't know whether it was or not, but it certainly becomes a, an object of um, veneration for those whose theology includes the idea that if you go to a particular holy place that you gain some kind of spiritual benefit or insight by doing that when i was there last year the lines to get into that grotto underneath the, the church were you know very long and our guide suggested we'd probably be waiting in line 2 or 3 hours if we were going to uh, wanting to get in so we didn't <laughs> But when you go into the actual church, and this is the um, story that I told in the um, article, there's uh, the doorway to the church is something that I think that just to me is a great example of this concept of humility that I was talking about. And it's actually called the doorway, the door of humility. And so Big Old Stone Church, it was originally had a very large doorway. And during the Crusader times, it was actually closed up to stop you know, to, to make the church less susceptible to attack. Yeah, and the first thing was to stop it and make the doorway small enough so that you couldn't just ride your horse in to charge in and attack. That was the first step in the process. And then some years later, or some centuries later, it was, the door was made smaller again. And now the doorway is probably only about four feet tall, and uh, everybody who goes through that doorway has to stoop and bow I guess in that kind of sense to enter and thus the door of humility means that even in stepping into that church you have gone through the physical process of bowing in reverence because that's the only way to get through the door mm. and i think that's such a powerful you know recognizing the significance of what it means that jesus you know in the christian tradition jesus as god became human was born in that place and and that that changes the the story of history. And so the physical act of moving through that door is an acknowledgement of our humbleness mm. uh, in, in the context of that story.
0: Throughout the article, you, you mentioned not only the spiritual aspect of humility, but also the personal aspect of humility. And there were quite a few things that you said that were very interesting. For example, you mentioned that whenever we notice progress towards humility, we are tempted to be proud of that achievement as, as if it's a sort of a, a skill or sort of something that needs to be practiced. Do, do you think that is what humility is, something that we consciously need to work on? Or is it, is it sort of part of our human character? Like I know for, for people that I feel that are very humble, it, it, it almost seems like it's just a part of them as opposed to, for me, consciously, where I have to keep reminding myself to be more humble. <laughs> Yeah,
1: and, it, and that makes it such a slippery virtue if we talk about humility as a virtue. Mm. As soon as we come become self-conscious about it, we've kind of lost the core of what humility actually is. You know, if one simple way of... Defining humility is to recognize it as forgetting ourselves or putting others in front of ourselves. As soon as we become self-conscious, we've kind of lost an important element of it. Mm. So it's kind of a hard thing to kind of sit down and focus on yourself and try to forget yourself. Mm. You know, it's it's like that statement, the that that kind of joke where you say, you know, whatever you do, don't think of an elephant, mm. and everybody ha- instantly has a has a picture of an elephant in their mind. So humility is a little bit like that, that it's not really something that we can conjure in our own way, in our within ourselves by working hard on it or focusing on it in that way. It's more a self-forgetfulness, which means that it requires us to focus on something other than ourselves and ultimately something bigger than ourselves or more powerful or meaning more meaningful than ourselves and that's a real challenge for us as human beings because just by virtue of our physical and spiritual and emotional makeup you know we are sort of stuck within ourselves we never get away from ourselves there's kind of this continual dance with what humility actually is and how it is best lived out but i do think that there comes a point of just a, a habit of being of not putting ourselves first in our thinking and in our actions and in our, you know, in our engagements with the world around us, and that's I think is something I, that putting it in the context of faith makes the most sense.
0: That's right, because later on, you in the article you also mentioned that being humble in your faith is is about asking those big questions about and acknowledging that something is bigger than yourself, as you mentioned, but also acknowledging that you're not the first person to have asked those big questions. Is that a sort of a problem that you see in society these days, that we almost feel like we are all pioneers, we're all (laughs) entrepreneurs in our sense, we're all leading the the way, whereas we don't stop and acknowledge what's come before us?
1: Yeah, and I think that's a real risk, and Particularly for many of us when we're younger, perhaps we you know we think that we get we can be tempted to think that we're the first person to have had that experience or thought of that that moment because it is a first for us, and that's important and valuable that we recognize those milestones. but once again pushing that back to faith, faith always reminds us that there were people who believed this before us. there were people that asked those questions before us that wrestling with some of the big questions of life, the universe and everything are actually, you know, it's an ongoing work that we simply get invited to listen in on firstly and then perhaps to join in on. And that's the invitation of faith. Mm. So, yeah, I um, I do think that there are there are challenges or just that just who we are, we make these assumptions that we, you know, it's very rare that any of us come up with something that is truly unique and that shouldn't be discouraging it's simply a fact that we have more in common with each other than we often assume and uh, we also have more in common with people in the past than we sometimes assume and so whether that's generations that are still with us and so we can what we can learn from those who are older from us, than us or, and some and of course also from people who are younger than us when we live in you know multi-generational kind of situations we actually recognize that some of these ideas are you know are repeated that they're that they're different stages of life that we move through all of those things but also in the bigger picture of faith that you know we can go back and read in church history and theology and you know in the traditions of other faiths as well what previous generations have done to wrestle with some of our fears and uh, questions and concerns in in
0: what it means to be human. Mm, that's right, and and one of those interesting things about you know our place in history and our 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 place as far as the universe and our place as far as our relation to our heavenly father goes is the Bible does emphasise how important we are as human beings, and that's something that we we often discuss how much God loves us and stuff. But we also need this element of humility to recognise that God is far greater than us. Like we the The Bible multiple times talks about f- fearing God in a sense, which is can be a bit of a confusing concept for for a loving heavenly Father. So, so what is the sort of balance that we can have between understanding our importance, but also understanding that we are transcended?
1: Yeah, I mean, a part of it is recognizing that we are unique and important and wonderful, just like everybody else we meet. <laughs> um, that you know i'm unique just like you are unique kind of makes our uniqueness it doesn't diminish our uniqueness but it actually puts it in that larger context mm-hmm. that it's not just about focusing on ourselves that faith always calls us beyond ourselves that's that's just how faith works so that i think that's important yeah it doesn't i mean i do think that we have to recognize that particularly in our western consumerist Uh, individualized societies, we often think that it's about me and that it begins and ends with me. That's actually not the tradition which most of the historic faiths begin with. They're much more focused on what it means to be a society or what it means to be a family or a community. So I think that kind of perspective is important. And when we, even when we're reading, you know, ancient texts and even, you know, in the context of Christianity, the Bible, you know, so often, even in the New Testament, something will be addressed to you. Now, we often read that as me individually, when it's actually more more often addressed to we as a community. And I think that's a significant, just that small change of perspective changes how we understand these things and recognizes that this is larger than just me as an individual. But it's even if we're sort of wanting to just restrict it to our time and place, it's it also includes the people around us Mm -hmm. and the people that we share our lives with. But, you know, even in the context of, you know, uh, I grew up singing a song that um, anybody who grew up going to to church probably recognised that, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know. We kind of have this idea that Jesus loves me and that's a wonderful, important thing, but it's actually a bigger thing to recognize that Jesus loves us, Mm -hmm. Uh, not just me and not just the people who are like me, but he, that RC includes people who are not like me, and people who might even I not that I might not even like very much, or might even make me afraid. That you know the the truth of the Bible and the gospel is gets to this broader picture that Jesus loves all of us,
0: mm. and
1: that's a much bigger love than just Jesus loves me. And that's something I think we can celebrate and be excited by.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now you also talk about faith in a sort of a, a corporate setting or rather a structured setting in regards to the church, how that can sometimes lead to to a bit of pride. so how do you think it, it, it's possible to to rem, remain humble when a group of faith-based believers are, are organized in a structure and not let pride get in the way of, of our collective connection to christ. <laughs>
1: And that's a challenge too. And I mean, one of, our, one of the easiest ways to define a community is by who's not part of it and what we are not. You know, if we even set up people who are enemies, that becomes a, that's kind of an, a shortcut to creating a sense of community or a sense of a group dynamic. We as people of faith are called to reject and resist that temptation mm. because everybody, the whole purpose of faith is that it's something that is available to everybody and that in the invitation is there is open to everybody. And in the Christian context, you know what makes the kingdom of God scandalous, to borrow a phrase, is not who it keeps out, but who it lets in. Mm. You know, that's kind of an important thing to keep in mind is that uh, however we might define something, you know, particularly if we go back and look at the stories of Jesus, he was always challenging and pushing the boundaries of who's in and who's out and some, you know, often in ways that scandalise the good religious folks. And so, you know, this, you know, even if we look back in the history of our faith traditions, we will see things there that would never work in the narrowly defined communities that we sometimes try to insist on today. There are, there are always even historical anomalies to how we might try to define those things today. So again looking at historically, looking at the bigger picture and the bigger call of faith and even the practice of faith itself, we're always challenged that, our, you know, not to, you know, find pride so much in who we keep out and how we define ourselves and that we might be the best faith in the absolute history of the world, but that we are called to be bigger than that and that the focus shouldn't be on ourselves. But the focus should be beyond ourselves on the traditions of faith and on the, the God of faith and on the calling of faith to uh, love and serve those around us that always pushes us outwards.
0: Yeah, because it's so easy when when you have all the uh, knowledge and sort of this enlightened understanding of the Bible, it's so easy to, to go about your day and... With this sort of pride within yourself that oh I know this this secret that you don't know kind of thing, but it's that's really not what faith is about, is it?
1: No, I mean, if you know something special, the first call is to share it, mm. um, which means to give it away, you know, And that the one that can actually risk, if if you've found your identity, and my pride is that I know something that you don't know, sharing it and giving it away in that kind of way is a challenge to that identity. And so hum- it, it requires humility to say, well, you know, I'm prepared to share something that you know you might not. It also takes humility to recognize that that other person probably knows some, a thing or two about faith that you don't. Yeah. And so it needs to be a conversation and recognizing that even when we encounter people outside, how we might consider or describe or define our faith community, we need to recognize that even in, in the tradition of our faith, we probably, we should expect that God has already been at work in that person's life, mm. that they've already had experiences of faith and that they wrestle with many of the same questions that we do. And um, very likely we can learn a thing or two from them as well.
0: The real real core theme I think that you, you bring about in this article is is the word that you use later on, which is authenticity and authenticity in the practice and progress of faith. Now, for anyone who's sort of listening to this and and wondering, "Wow, this is um, you know, where do I start?" kind of thing, how do I kick off this sort of relationship with the Heavenly Father in a way that is humble? What what are some practical things that we can do to start that sort of process?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you. I mean, a lot of faiths have this kind of idea of that it begins with some kind of repentance or confession or submission, you know, different language in different faith traditions, but that we actually re- simply recognize that there is something bigger going on that, than just ourselves and our own agendas and our own assumptions about life. That is such a significant and important starting point, you know, just that there is bigger. There is something bigger than us that this whole story is about. That's that's a pretty important first realization and recognition, and and then actual submission too. What does it mean to learn? You know, if we're to, we're to explore faith, if you're open to learning something wherever that good or truth may come from, that's a position of humility. Yeah, you know, we recognise and we say, you know, I might not know it all quite yet, and you know a lot of us will give kind of recognition of that but do we live like it do we expect to learn new things in our lives do we expect to you know to grow in our understandings and our experiences or do we simply assume that hey i've got it all together i've 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 got it there so i just need to share it with other people that and that's a challenge for all of us wherever we are
0: in that journey mm-hmm. Well, it's been great to have you here sharing some pearls of wisdom and experiences from your trips, Nathan. Thank you so much for joining us on Signs of the Times radio. Not a problem. Thank you for the opportunity. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media.
1: This is an Adventist Media podcast.